0: If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is against you, but you must rule over it. Soon after that, Cain suggested to his brother Abel, why don't we go into the field? While they were walking in the field, Cain attacked and killed his brother. This was the first murder in the Bible. Later, God asked Cain, where is Abel, your brother? I don't know, Cain replied. Am I supposed to keep track of him wherever he goes? Am I his keeper? But God said, what have you done? Your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I am removing you from this land that you've corrupted with your brother's blood. It will no longer produce abundant crops for you. It will not yield to you its strength. From now on, you will be homeless, a fugitive who wanders from place to place. Cain replied to God, this punishment is greater than I can bear. You have removed me from my home and my work, from your presence. You have made me a fugitive. Whoever finds me will kill me. God replied, not so. They will not kill you. Anyone who tries to harm you will receive seven times your punishment. God put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to attack him. Cain left God's presence, traveled to a land east of the garden, east of Eden, where he would start a family of his own. Now it's time for some dialogue. Great. Uh, Shep, you are gonna be on the hot seat today because <laughs> every question starts with you. Okay, we won't make Shep answer every question first, so we'll always give you first dibs if you want to. Um, what was the difference between Cain's sacrifice and Abel's sacrifice? Okay, you'll do this one and I won't make you do the others. What do you think?
1: Cain brought, like, some crops, but it
0: was like the best, of, these crops and even the best the Yeah, it's great. Anyone have anything they want to add to that? The difference between the, the two sacrifices?
2: The Able and faith.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's interesting, Tristan, the connection between bringing in faith and bringing your best and maybe those go together. Okay, so now we're going to reflect a little bit on what God said to Cain when he was angry and sad that God had rejected his offering, which I have up here on the screen. I, I like this line a lot. I don't know if anyone in here read East of Eden, but I was thinking a lot about East of Eden. It's, okay, I got some snaps for East of Eden. Um, this is a very important line in East of Eden, and I think it's important for us. So it says, God said... Why are you angry? Why do you look so discouraged? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is against you, but you must rule over it. So let's take a couple of minutes. A couple of people can respond here. What do you think this meant?
3: He has a choice.
0: Hmm. You want to say more?
3: God saying, why are you upset? Like, the expectation has been set. Like, you've been given what to do, and if you do it, then you know what will happen.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but be careful. And so I just, I don't know, I I think a lot about, like, the predestination of last week. Right? Mm-hmm. So, like, but this, God is there really saying, You you have a choice, it's okay. You can you can't, you can't choose. This is not set in stone
4: Mm mm-hmm
3: and it's and also that it's not forever pretty like yeah you don't have to stay here you don't have to stay here
0: yeah who wants to add on that
5: I feel like it's interesting that like say the serpent has gone invisible Mm. there is an enemy it's like it's not just pain like there's some hostile Uh, crouching at the door, it's desires against you, mm. but it's not the serpent who mm. is doing that, it's now, like, inside Cain or part of Cain or mm. some dynamic. Yeah.
6: This feels like a generous response mm. to me from God, which is, like, he's, like, sort of inviting Cain to re- reflect on... <laughs> he's being a good therapist, I guess. He's like, well, why do you feel this way? Like, let's get at this. Like, mm. this is, you know, you you are consumed by this anger, but this situation is, you know, by your actions,
4: mm.
6: you know, is is how we got here. Um, and he's even saying like, this acceptance or not acceptance is is kind of on you. Mm. So you have all this anger towards your brother, or maybe towards God. I mean, presumably towards God, which the next doesn't really get into. Mm. God's like, can well,
0: Fix it?" You know?
6: <laughs> yeah. Which came to not
0: do. <laughs> yeah, I think that theme does really come through in this, these comments from God. That this theme of agency and choice, and that the past doesn't determine the future. Um, which is though striking when we think about what Cain does with his agency next. So let's turn to that. So, or I think more broadly, the question I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on is before he murdered his brother, had Cain sin, put differently, where do you locate sin starting in in this story? Where's the kind of the turn for, for Cain?
1: You're sinning by not giving me your
7: best, or like you're very sin adjacent. Not giving me your best. <laughs> I, am curious about this. I think it. To answer this, we have to understand what sin is, which I think in a lot of times when we're sitting in a room in a church, we assume that we understand what sin is. But hmm. I think, uh, yeah, I, I a common understanding of sin in, like, the Jewish communities is missing the mark. But then, and then I think, like, growing up in, like, a Protestant tradition, I learned that sin was that which separates us from God.
4: Mm.
7: Like, one is a more of a description, like, definition by detail and one is a definition by effect. Mm. Um, But I think... And maybe it's both and maybe it's neither but i think if if sin is missing the mark then maybe he sinned by by giving the wrong offering uh there wasn't like shame implied there wasn't like distance created like like he still god is still coming to him and talking to him and they're having a conversation and say it's it's not over um and then it's not until like after he murders his brother that he's then cast cast out which maybe we haven't gotten to yet, sorry. But I just think, like, understanding that, so, like, is sin the missing the mark, or is sin the thing that separates us from God, and, like, or mm-hmm. is it both, in which case both of these could be sin? I don't know. But I think the way that we understand sin in this moment, it has, like, really huge implications for then how we experience ourselves as sinners or, you know, like, yeah. in all the other ways that we talk about sin, like, in culture and in just, theology. so I think this is really curious. Yeah. Like, this question, and which I didn't,
0: but I think asking it is really great. No, I think it's
5: good. I think one thing that stands out to me in this passage is especially if you go back to the previous quote on the slide, um, Sin is crouching at the door, his desire is against you It suggests or implies that sin has urgency, that word? Um, which is a serious statement because that's not how I often sort of understand. And that quote also seems to imply that if you do well, you know, it will not be accepted, but if you do not do well, instead of cracking
6: at the door. It's sort of over it as of like, it's like if you do well, there's this grace or protection
5: if, if you don't,
7: like an extra step from what we normally think about like normally it's like if you do well you're not sinning and if you don't do well you are sinning mm-hmm. but, but the, yeah that line kind of implies that there's like a, an extra intermediary stuff like you could not do well and then you're like exposed to sin mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it would be like an additional step maybe
0: yeah there's an interesting way and in it's in a way this highlights a, a sort of fundamental relationality uh, on the one hand we see Dave pointed out uh, Satan diminishing a bit, which is interesting to me. I grew up; uh, my mom's always been like one of those people who's like, "Well, it's the devil." Like, phone rings during prayer at dinner, Satan. You're like, "Okay, he probably has bigger <laughs> things to work on than like messing up our like dinner prayer," you know. Um, but then, like the opposite extreme of that is this kind of like very like. I think we're hitting on this idea of like sin is this very kind of individualized thing. I have my own sin stuff that's inside me that's personal and I I think this quote, all these comments highlight for me that this quote really kind of challenges both of those extremes that there's more this kind of like relational interplay and struggle that is becoming fundamental. Um, Okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to read the last two questions together, they're basically the same, two versions of the same question, we'll reflect on this and then go on to the next scene. So this is our first glimpse at God's relationships with humans after the fall. Do you have any thoughts on how this story is similar to and different from the interactions we discussed last week between Adam, Eve, and God? More broadly, what are we learning about humans and about God in this story.
1: Yeah? I don't have a um, belief going to talk to that, so I'm gonna do a little bit. Um, and I wasn't here last week, but I think a lot of what I'm is how much like internal turmoil, like you know, humans, but like to and then things and and how, like if we do well, Like, we're feeling good and connected and um, kind of surrounded by God. But if we don't do well, then there's, like, this step of, like, anger. And I don't think anger is that. I think it makes us more vulnerable than what we choose to do with that anger and then open us up to, like, this. So it almost seems like this flowing relationship between like God, our shame, and our desire to be close to him, but also like our desire to be independent, and then the anger and mm. that and really, you know, that makes us more vulnerable. And so I think there's like, it seems to be like in the story there's like a huge connection between God really wanting to see us and know us. Mm. Asking the important questions and letting us say that. But then also that we have our own pretty well in what we do
0: with that and Mm -hmm. which which way we choose to go Mm. yeah that's good i like that a lot um i think it also for me is just uh there's so much sorrow in this first story and it's also interesting to me how how quickly the shift happens from um Adam and Eve, and then, you know, sort of, like, sin enters, but here, like, the it results in this extreme, you know, enmity between brother and brother, and I think, yeah, it always feels sad, but I think especially now having um, two children who are siblings, like, it just, like, hits in a different way, like, just what a tragic thing it is for, like, one sibling to turn against the other, and... um yeah, just something I was reflecting on this week as we, as we think about this story of, like, the real, yeah, this real idea of, like, sin crouching out the door, its desire against you, and how that sort of, like, challenges the kinds of relationships we were made for. I think it's interesting.
5: Go ahead. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, what
3: stuck
1: out to me this year is how, uh, in both Adam, Eve and Eve, and Abel, God asks these questions, and he has the answer to. Mm. Um, like, people do me send Adam, Eve, and his-
5: like these things, or completely, that you're and then, yeah, where is your brother? Like, he knows his answer. I think it's interesting that he uses to use teach that way. Mm. Yeah? Yeah, I feel like it's interesting that it's like comment about God being therapeutic here, and that's, you get that a little bit in the first story the, with Adam and Eve, mm. but it does, It's like shifted nodes to where he he knows people are sinners. Like, Mm. here it's like, because even it's like, when did he sin? well, he's probably sent a bunch of times, you know, like, as kid, and they're like, this isn't the first time King has, like, needed counsel. Um, But yeah, just God's, like, he's, like, trying to hold on. And even the fact that King has to be banished further, Mm. it's just sad. It's like, we thought we could just, like, set them peace to be, you Know just like outside a little bit, but then you're like, once he murders his brother, it's like, Man, I gotta send you maybe farther out, like, you, you can't be here. Um, it's just a tragedy of that. Yeah, it feels like God is more protective, like, even the way that Adam and Eve it was just them and the serpent before. Um, where is God now? Why wasn't he like there? She, there, but now he is trying to as the, like, in servants, like, little influence, like, trying to help them now. Yeah. Um, so God feels more present in this story than he felt in the, I mean, in the, fall of the story.
0: Yeah, that is interesting, a shift in God in intervening a little sooner, and even so. Yeah, Cain <laughs> goes the wrong direction. Um, okay, I'm going to move on to Act 2, Scene three, uh, there's coffee. So if you wanna get coffee while I'm sharing, I'm, I'm gonna talk for a couple minutes share the story. This is a good time to grab your coffee if you would like some. Okay, act two, scene three, the flood. In a second. <laughs> The number of humans on the earth grew rapidly. Not only did rebellion spread from Adam and Eve to their sons, it spread from generation to generation. Even though humans were created in God's image, every person chose to disobey God's ways. Humans were completely out of control, acting out in selfishness and violence all the time. When God saw that the people's hearts and minds were filled with evil day and night, his heart was broken. So God decided to start over saying, I will completely wipe out the human race that I created. I'm sorry that I ever made them. But there was one man named Noah who found grace with God. Noah had a close relationship with God. He was the only blameless man living on earth at that time. So God said to Noah, I have decided to cover the earth with a flood, destroying everything alive, but I will give you a plan to keep you safe. God told Noah to build a large boat called an ark, giving him specific instructions about how big to make it, what it should look like. God said to Noah, make an ark from wood, seal it with tar inside and out, build many decks and stalls for animals. I promise to keep you safe in this ark. A pair of every kind of animal, a male and a female, will come to you to be kept alive. You will also bring seven pairs of animals that I have approved for you to eat and sacrifice. And remember, take enough food for your family and all the animals. Noah did everything exactly as he was told. And just as God said, the floods came. Water burst from the earth, rain poured from the sky. When the waters came, Noah and his wife, their three sons and their wives, and all the pairs of the animals boarded the ark. As the waters rose... The ark floated safely on the surface. The flood covered even the tallest of mountains, and all living creatures on the earth were destroyed except for those on the ark. After 40 days, the rain stopped. Many months passed as the waters slowly began to dry up. For weeks, Noah sent out a dove to see if it could find dry land. Finally, the dove returned with an olive leaf in its mouth. Noah sent the dove out again. When it didn't come back, he knew it was safe to return to land. As soon as Noah came off the ark, he built an altar, selecting pure animals, sacrificing them to God as a symbol of his thankfulness and worship. God was delighted by Noah's sacrifice and said, I promise to never again destroy all living things with a flood, even though people's thoughts and actions are bent toward evil from the time they are children. As a symbol of my promise, I will hang a rainbow in the clouds. When I see the rainbow, I will remember the eternal covenant between me and every living creature on earth. Then God told Noah and his sons, I have put all animals under your control. You can use them for food, but you must never eat animals that still have their lifeblood in them. Life is in the blood. All life belongs to me. And those who murder must be punished. God blessed Noah and his family, telling them to have many children and once again fill the earth with people. It's time for some more dialogue. Okay, anyone can answer this question, not just Shep. Why did God flood the earth and destroy everything? Do you think he had good reasons for doing this? Oh, Lucy's here. Lucy, it's on you. (laughs) (laughs) You can just share one thought. Nice. So, Lucy says God has good reasons. People are getting a little out of control, and he was doing a reset. Does anyone want to agree or challenge Lucy on whether God had good reasons for the flood? I'm missing all my most contentious members who would challenge the flood, so I expect you all to bring your toughest challenges to... (laughs)
6: I mean, okay, one thing about <laughs> this that's hard, I'm going gonna, gonna, to, somebody has to wear a Jared Davis hat. So yeah. That's what
0: I'm saying. There we go, Hamilton.
6: Um, is like, one thing that's about this that's hard is that this does feel like a shit, where like Cain yeah. is even, you know, arguably Cain is even considering something evil, and God comes in and is like, hold on, let's talk. And here, everyone is doing evil, and God does not, least... As reported in the
4: story, like, is not going to intervene personally, and he's just like, let's just start. Mm. And so, like, that's
6: something that's really challenging is like, we see grace and mercy for Noah, but it's uh, a really challenging aspect of this is that, like, God
4: basically seems to come to the conclusion that people are, are irritating, mm-hmm. which
6: is really a hard thing to
0: know how to even react to. Yeah, other thoughts?
8: God's regret, we hard this time?
0: Mm. Yeah, that he says he wishes he hadn't even made them.
9: It's like the question, like, did God, does God make mistakes? Mm. Did he make mistakes? We believe his character is like, he's omniscient, he knows everything, he knows his intention to do everything, so it seems also strange for him to do something that he has to regret about. He already knew what he was going to do. Hmm. Yeah, I think the
4: challenge
5: is like, God has shown where He showed grace to God, and he showed He says, like, he sends that we need. Mm-hmm. with the best guy.
9: Mm. So if we go back to Adam and Eve, and his curse is basically like, sin, your sin leads to death, which is up until that point was, like, natural death, or whatever death that plays out. But then here he, like, takes it a step further. He's like, I'm going to intervene and actually wipe everyone out. And gonna, so it's like, it seems excessive, or another yeah, he's he's intervening in, in instrumented death mm. on a wide scale, right? Uh, mm. In addition to the curse of natural death, so the
8: plot, I mean, of it's a the plot, but yeah. I think it's interesting too to think about like, everything in God's perspective, like a perfect God watching so much sin, watching mankind like partaken day by day, just overwhelming to just watch all of that. And like the idea of water like cleansing everything, wanting everyone to be pure, like I think it's just like seeing God's first emotional perspective and um mm. like earth would not be earth, mankind would not be mankind if there wasn't sin. Not everyone can be perfectly pure and cleansed. So um I think it's just I I think it's interesting to look at it
1: as like how hard it is to watch people act in the way they do all of the time. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting it it raises for me I feel like in this story we see a little bit more um like emotional variability with God like God being more disappointed but then also it's interesting to me and that it talks about how when it when Noah does make the sacrifices that they're delightful for God like you like sense this like joy kind of the opposite extreme Whereas I feel like so far it has been more the kind of a good therapist, like it's probably why I wouldn't have been a good therapist, like you're not supposed to get too emotional in response to what the person is saying. Um, And here I think we see a little more of God, you know, having his own kind of uh, ups and downs. I'm going to skip the second question, but you can comment on it if you want to. I think we've highlighted it already, but basically it's like, how do you react to this? How does it make you feel? But what I want to go to is the story says that Noah was blameless. What does that mean for Noah to have been blameless? And the second part of this question that I think is really interesting is, do you feel like, we always think of Noah as kind of, you know, the lucky one here, Noah and his family, but was there anything that might have been costly about being spared?
2: discussion
0: but um you can always go back to the first question so bring us back there
2: i just want to say i think something that i really wrestle with is like about god this story is like wanting to trust and believe and god being all-knowing um but when i experience in like our lives as they're playing out like we we are met with surprise and met with like things that we didn't anticipate and so it just feels hard I think seeing it feels like not that God is being reactive but that God is reacting in a way that makes me feel like oh Mm. did you not see this coming
4: Mm. um,
2: but makes you think that yeah. It makes me question and have a hard time with like God being able to see the future, like from before, like everybody turned out the first time. Mm. Like, why didn't God anticipate that? And then also, like, once the blood happens, like, is God not anticipating like that that could happen? Again? Mm. That everybody. Would
0: Yeah, who else wants to share either how how they react to this or their thoughts on Noah being blameless, being spared? One thing that's interesting is like Noah's
8: reward for being
4: blameless is to have
8: people to do shit, like do a ton of work, mm-hmm. and then care for all of the animals by himself. Mm-hmm. It seems like a lot. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like something that... Um, and I'm kind of finding myself thinking like, if everybody else died, like I might want to just be with the
1: other people mm-hmm. and not have to go through all of this, work and being like up on a ship with, with
8: your family. family. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What was the quality of life for everybody? Hmm. It could have felt like money. Yeah. I looked at um to see it in this context of uh, the word there, not just a general definition. And it says, sound, wholesome, unimpaired, innocent, having integrity of God's way. Hmm. of Giving uh, heart and hand to God's way, that the other people, it says, were just continually doing evil in their heart and hand. Mm. So there was a distinction with Him. And maybe even in parallel to Cain and Abel, how, you know, Cain and Abel knew God's way, and we learned one did it and Mm. one didn't. Mm. So Hmm. Because it's multiple people and not just siblings.
4: Hmm.
5: Yeah, it, it also says Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And so, I mean, you curious, like even flashing back to Cain hmm. and God's, and be careful, man, like the coaching that God gave to Cain was no response Of things that could have played out in Cain's story, but Cain's not blameless. Mm. Um, maybe that same kind of thing is, especially in, in the world surrounded that's apparently so terrible. I guess I was always like, is it more awful than I can imagine? I mean, I guess some the stories does say that God spares the world, even though it's so distinct. I think it's such a great question. I've actually never thought about this question, of like, what cost was it on Noah? Um, yeah, I think you picture like Robinson Crusoe or something like that, the Robinson being played, where it's like just, still like on, you know, he's like riding ostriches around, you know? Um, uh, but it's gotta be so supreme. And then you realize like what this, this person, this or the god that you know attached yourself to, he means business, you know, like he's not not somebody to be trifled with. Mm.
4: You get to witness that. Um, anxiety.
0: No, it's okay. This is, this is all Noah, so go ahead.
1: I don't know, but I don't think it was from self-dealing. There was a lot of
3: weight to carry. So like, when it was the third, it
4: was just...
3: It's got to really scar you, and yes, you're a saint.
0: Is a lot. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to keep us moving. Yeah. I think we can just kind of hold that tension as we go into the next story and see what carries and what feels different as we move into act three, scene one, the covenant. We're going to do this story in two parts. so There's going to be a dialogue in the middle and at the end briefer dialogues though. Noah's descendants forgot about God and how he had spared them in the flood. They made plans to construct a great city out of brick. They said, let's build a monument to ourselves that reaches to the heavens to show how great we are. God saw how the people were gathering to honor themselves instead of him. The same time, at that time, everyone on earth spoke the same language. God gave people different languages to make it harder for them to join together in rebellion. Then he scattered them all over the earth. A question for you to think about, we're not going to talk about it, but just to think about, why did God stop them from building a monument to themselves? A few generations later, God established a relationship with and made a special promise to a man named Abram. The promise was called a covenant, representing the deepest of all agreements between two people. God told Abram, I will make you the father of a great nation. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I will bless the entire earth through your descendants. This was an amazing promise. He was choosing to bless the entire world through one family. There was just one problem. Abram's wife, Sarai, was unable to have children. How would the earth be blessed through their descendants? When God made the promise, they were already getting old. Abram was about 75. Sarai was about 65. God told Abram, leave your country, your relatives, go to the land that I will show you. He led them to a land called Canaan. There, God told him, look as far as you can see in every direction. I am giving this land to you and your descendants. This land would be called the promised land. Sometime past, they still did not have a child. Abram asked God, what good are all your blessings if I don't even have a son? I'm getting old, and soon I will have to give my inheritance to one of my servants. God replied to Abram, No, you will have a son who will inherit everything that I have promised you. Then God took Abram out beneath the night sky and said, Look up into the heavens, count the stars. Your family will be like this. Too many to count. Abram believed what God said, so God called him righteous because of his faith. But more years passed. Sarai became impatient. She ordered her servant, a woman named Hagar, to be a substitute for her. Abram agreed Hagar became pregnant and gave birth to a boy named Ishmael, but Hagar and Sarai's relationship became strained. During the pregnancy, Hagar began to despise Sarai, and in return, Sarai treated her terribly. Eventually, Hagar and her son Ishmael were sent away and not allowed to live with Abram's family, but God protected Hagar and her son so much so that Hagar called him the God who sees me. When Abram was 99, God appeared again, saying, I am the mighty God. Serve me with your entire life. I will keep my covenant with you for many generations. I am changing your name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. I will always be your God. You will always be my people. Then God added, I am changing your wife's name to Sarah, which means mother of many nations. Very soon, she will be blessed with a son. You are to name the son Isaac. Both Abraham and Sarah laughed to themselves in disbelief of God's promise. Abraham wondered, how can I become a father at 100 years old? Sarah thought, how could a worn-out woman like me have a baby? Abraham asked God, would you pass on your blessing through my son Ishmael? But God said, why did you laugh? Is anything too hard for me? A year from now, you will have a son. It is through Isaac that I will pass my blessing. Sure enough, a year later, just as God said, Sarah gave birth to their first son, naming him Isaac, which means laughter. The birth of Isaac was the beginning of God fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham. God desired for Abraham's descendants, called the Hebrew people, to be a new kind of people who would show the world what it means to live in relationship with God and walk in God's ways. Okay, so we just have uh, a couple of minutes for this dialogue. But I want to hear your thoughts on what did God promise to Abraham? What did he want Abraham's nation to be like? What does this promise tell us about what God is like? You can also share other thoughts on this story if you have a burning thought about the Abraham, Sarah, Hagar triad well, youth, looks like you guys have to go first. No one wants to talk until you share your thoughts. (laughs) What do you think God promised to Abraham? Anything about it? It's not a trick question. Yeah, a lot of babies, exactly. What else? Uh, Who else wants to comment on God's promise and the kind of nation that God sort of has envisioned here. The land mm.
1: <coughs>
0: yeah, the promised land. Very good. God will bless those who bless Abraham. Who mm. What does that tell you about what God is like?
6: It's interesting to think of the going straight from the Noah story and Real lengthy narrative Abraham's story. It's kind of an echo. There's like one person that's kind of the, the righteous person, um, and this time instead of saying like we're just gonna kill everyone else, it's like okay we're gonna use this kind of seed to like mm. this is gonna be the, the part that will make the rest a little better. Because like oh that's a good new plan or next stage of this plan I guess for um, how he's gonna make.
5: Yeah, God is more discriminant because the curse, like you think about the flood was a curse, but it was sort of like a machete you know, like, and this is more scalpel, like mm. because it's like an in- individual response to his children
4: hmm
0: Yeah, it's interesting. There's an interesting, like, God-building element here where the first institution God makes is a family, which is, like, a really important foundational institution of culture, but then here, and then there's the flood, which is kind of this, like, wiping away, and then here it's not just a family, it's it's a nation, which is, you know, like, if we think about the difference between, like, a garden and a city, a family and a nation are related in some ways, but a nation is a more... Uh, complex entity and institution.
8: And even into world because it's the and in you, all the
0: families of the, mm-hmm. the- mm-hmm. yeah, that's also interesting, Marley. We did the tiny bit on Babel, and there's kind of a a way in which that feels like not the flood but a mini version of God kind of thwarting plans, but then here it's it's not just okay, I care about this one family. it's all these other people that I've dispersed. I care about them too. There's a kind of back and forth <laughs> so
3: establishment of what nation should look like Mm. within our world, not one that is Babel, yeah. But this other, this other nation that is his nation. Mm. Um, I don't know. I have problems with Noah, but just like it, just it feels. I think it's a really difficult passage Mm. because it shows, in some ways, like the enormity of God's power Mm. to but also his limitations and his power to change hearts. Mm -hmm. Um, And we go back to to why he does that. It is for relationship, presumably. Um, But I guess why why does he limit his power um, Mm
4: -hmm.
3: in really changing people? Mm-hmm. Um but exerts it in a way that, that wipes out when like, the next hermit we babble in exactly the same place. Mm-hmm.
4: Uh
3: but it is an interesting contrast going from Babel to to the nation of ultimately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, do you ultimately. Think- um, well, yeah, so you limiting. What time is that, like, at the end of the flood, God limits himself. Like, destruct- he limits his destructive, even though he is powerful to flood the earth again if he wants to. He says, I'm not going to. Um, and so he's like self
4: limiting.
5: He's hmm. in self control. Right? And then in this case, so that's like a covenant to to not use power and then this is a covenant to use power for good like i will bless you mm. and i will bless the world through you like, mm. it's a positive but like, it's like a a positive flood here mm. uh, like i am going to the world with blessing um, and i'm going to do it through you and your so mm.
9: But um, it was just int- struck me interesting that before Babel, everyone spoke the same language. It was almost like a curse for God to disperse everyone in multiple mm. languages. But today, and then of course in heaven, many tribes and tongues and nations, mm-hmm. it's the beauty of diversity that's, that worships God and sin. But it was born out of a curse. Mm. First, it was born out of a, such a curse to like, we all have to speak different languages. What, well, for we see diversity is a beautiful,
1: wonderful thing. Now,
9: mm-hmm. um, I guess like it back to like what, God,
1: what it tells us about God is that you can take even His own curses for good,
9: and mm. ultimate personal worship. Um, but yeah, it just struck me as crazy that diversity of language, of tribe, and nation is actually born out of it.
6: like a punishment. Mm. <laughs> and in
9: some ways, just,
6: yeah. And these two stories feel so to me. It, or the Tower of Babel, there isn't the idea of like, this is my people, and that's your people. Mm. It's like, we're all, we're all just kind of hanging out, I guess. And and like, this idea in Abraham's story of like, you are my separate people, you are my mm. people it feels like you almost can't get to that step or that idea without pulling through the Tower of Babel first. Mm. Yeah, I think the Tower of Babel
5: not only is it building a tower to themselves but they are disobeying the Lord to fill the earth and so I think diversity was a part of God's life they were supposed to spread out mm. fill the earth multiply fill the earth be fruitful and they did not spread out they stayed together mm. and so God is actually like forcing them to do what he told them to do.
4: Mm. The language would have come naturally as you know,
5: that's how it works, as people spread over the earth and it's been generations and mm. languages developed, cultures, and different instruments and food, and all those sort of things. That's what he wanted. Mm. And they were actually refusing to do that. Mm. So yeah, I don't know that the diversity of language isn't it is its a it is a curse to them, but it's really like, no, I'm gonna make you do that.
0: Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Feels a lot like parenting. Uh, which, which brings us to our final story of the day. Uh, it's a shorter one um, and really a continuation. And then we're going to, we have just a tiny bit of time to do like a final reflection after this. Some years later, God tested Abraham. He called out to him, Abraham, yes, I'm listening. Abraham replied, God said, I want you to take your son Isaac, whom you love, up to the top of the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. The next morning, Abraham awoke early, saddled up by his donkey, chopped some wood for the offering. After everything was ready, Abraham and his son set out for the mountain. About three days into their journey, they saw the mountain in the distance. Abraham told his servants, stay here. Isaac and I are going up to the mountain to worship. Then we will come back. Abraham took the knife and the wood from the servants, and he placed the wood for the sacrifice on Isaac's shoulders. As they were walking up the mountain, Isaac became curious and asked, Father, we have the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb we are going to sacrifice? Abraham told him, God himself will provide a lamb. When they arrived at the top of the mountain, they built an altar and placed the wood on it. Then Abraham took the knife and lifted it to kill his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God. At that moment, the angel of God shouted to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, yes, I'm listening, he replied. The angel said, Put down the knife. Do not hurt your son. It's clear that you trust God because you did not hesitate to give God what you love the most. Then Abraham looked behind and saw a ram with its horns caught in a bush. He caught the ram, offered it to God in place of his son. Abraham named that place at the top of the mountain. God will provide. The angel of God spoke to Abraham again, telling him, God wants to tell you, because you have not refused to give me your son, I will bless you greatly. Your family will multiply into millions like the stars in the sky and the sand on the beaches. Your descendants will defeat their enemies. The entire earth will be blessed through your family because you chose to obey me. Then Abraham and Isaac went down the mountain, met with their servants, and returned home. And so in our final, I think we have like four-ish, three to four minutes here, It's okay, I think, um, even two to three minutes. Is there anything you want to share about as you consider all of these stories together, what they reveal, and this last story in particular, what they reveal about God, humanity, and the relationship between the two?
9: I think I'm struck by the humanity of both Noah and Abraham. Mm It's easy to think of all uh, these of, like the Old Testament, but they're just men. They're mm. very old men. And men are loved by God. And thinking about them hearing these promises from God and like, suddenly <laughs> like, like, these things really happened. Like
4: mm. the
9: water starts rising, Noah can imagine thinking, like, "Wow, he was for real. Mm. He actually missed. He's actually killing everybody except for me, which would be a harrowing feeling." And then Abraham, as he like raises the knife again, like, "Wow, he was for real." Mm. when they were just fully, but these people were fully human. They weren't, the
4: mm-hmm. you know, humans that were think, you know, engaging in these events. Uh, I think I was struck by that today. And why I had to do mm. this? John.
5: Yeah, something that kind of keeps coming up to me basically stories is this sort of God's role mm. in the story so far, like God creates He like sets the stage, he creates an environment, mm. and then he creates images of God and gives them authority and blessings to steward them life, and life. The uh, environment that he created. And the humans, the images of God, keep on screwing up. And he still chooses to engage with them. And it's so. Yeah, I don't know.
4: It seems like he he takes the story a
5: certain a certain distance and then relies on his images to take it the rest of the way.
4: Mm.
5: And when they kind of go off course, he like sort of makes these environmental changes Mm. to direct them back on track. Mm. It's, It's as if God has a very, very, very high view and high status. Mm. these images of God it's up to the humans and God's waiting for the humans to like you know take it the rest of the way and like do the things that they were created to do that near his creative loving person that mm. yeah just, I'm just noticing that dynamic of actually this humans, is a lot of agency mm. and like, they seem to be in- integral to his
4: vision for the cosmos,
9: yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll add to that. struck me how active God is, and just his role, right? I think we just say, like, oh, <laughs> today we're like, God's in control, but you know, like, basically, we have the perception that we're like ruling our own lives, and it's mm. kind of like he kind of set this course, and then now we're like, free to just deal with everything and anything, I think he's, he's out there and aloof. And <laughs> Distant, but like you see how active he was Mm. to intervene and to speak and have a relationship so many times. I'm just thinking about how active he presumably still is, right? In our
0: everyday life in the world. Yeah. I think just, oh, go ahead.
6: Quickly, I'm I'm struck this time by the relationship between the Abraham story and uh, Cain and Abel. story. They feel like such mirrors of each other in a way. Mm. You know, it's about the sacrifice to God and like one is about a brother killing a brother and the other is about a father who's like about to kill a son and, God and it's like it's not going like to mm. be like
0: this yeah yeah I think uh, for me too and this will be the, the kind of final thing that then we'll transition into the next part I am very struck even now reading this story of Uh, Abraham and Isaac, and the question that comes to mind is one that was the title of one of my favorite sermons Dave preached last year, which is uh, The Cost of Glory, where you always, at least I had always thought of the Abraham and Isaac story in terms of, like, thank goodness for the outcome, but this time I'm struck with the link between what God tells what Abraham to do, and then when they get when Abraham finds out the outcome, you know, there's three days. That's obviously interesting because there's also three days between when um, Jesus was crucified and resurrected. I'm allowed to be a spoiler at this point because I'm doing the bridge into <laughs> communion, so <laughs> breaking my own rule because I get to do the last word. Um, but yeah, just really thinking about how sin is very costly. I think we see that in these stories, but glory is also costly. Like, being blameless is costly. Uh, yeah, I just can't. It, it does raise this question for me is, did Noah feel like it was worth it? Did Abraham feel like it was worth it to live through that three days of what he expected he was going to have to do? Did Isaac feel like it was worth it? You know, you're like, this has got to affect the father-son dynamic significantly, even though the ram came in. It's like, okay, I got to keep an eye on you, dad. Um, but, but you know, when we think more broadly about, yes, uh, glory is costly but ultimately it is God himself who who takes on that cost and that's what the story of Abraham and Isaac in particular is, is foreshadowing is the cost that God himself would bear in giving us his son so that the promises he made to Abraham and Noah could be fulfilled.